This is Big Man Tyrone, and you're about to watch the MTG Cabal cast with your hosts, Wood, Thirsty, and Reptar. Sub to us on all your podcast networks at MTG Cabal Cast and YouTube. Alrighty, guys, welcome to the newest episode of the Cabal Cast. This week, we're touching on an announcement TCG player made that's, you know, economically important everywhere because automation, whatever. And that's their acquisition of Roka Robotics. Yes. Uh, and what that kind of means for the industry, what automation's influence could be going forward, um, as well as, you know, when I was at Miniature Market, we actually used the Roka, so a little bit of my experience with it as well, and then we've got other bullet points that we'll be touching on, so let's get it started. Perfect. Yep, uh, so this was announced uh, November 4th, so a little under a week ago, um, about a week after the Steve Aoki announcement, and it's made its waves across the internet, but hasn't really been... Uh, brought to the surface of TCG Player with the standard amount of pomp and circumstance. Um, and I assume the way it'll be rolled out is kind of the way we expect it to, which is people who take advantage of the SYP product beef, and then to everybody else. So essentially what they're looking to do with this is just put it in place of human sorters. And, yep. you know, that's all fine and dandy. It essentially allows them to operate a little, mo a little bit more like fulfillment by Amazon, than they currently do and i think that's perfectly okay anybody with a warehouse and a huge amount of intake can and should probably be looking at something like this uh and it's interesting because so you know when miniature market was approached by roca they were reaching out to a bunch of companies uh they went to troll troll was like nah we're yeah. not gonna bother with it and they went to cool stuff and the interesting thing is that cool stuff's entire model uh, if you look at their website and you look at their buy prices, obviously their buy prices are competitive, but they're the magic bulk guys. They basically, their model is picking bulk, which you would think the Roka would be perfect for. They declined it, actually. Uh, my understanding was, at the time, the price model was prohibitive because the way the Roka software works, and this is something that kind of leads into this acquisition, Roka software was based on TCG player. Okay. It was not based off your individual prices. And that was something we paid a premium for at miniature market was we wanted to base it off of our buy prices and our price floors rather than TCG player and cool stuff basically said, look, you know, we have to, and this is one of the interesting things about the Roka. You still have to have someone to work the robot mm -hmm. because you have to load it up with a 5k. Then you have to, unload the cards, put them where they go, and do the process again. Yep. And Cool Stuff basically said, look, we pay people $12 an hour to do this, and they clear out two 5Ks an hour. Great. And I can tell you from when the Roka first started, when we had it at Miniature Market, it would get through maybe two and a half 5Ks a day. So at the time, the technology wasn't there. Now, the interesting thing is that TCG Player's acquisition of Roka not only further integrates the TCG player like model with it, it also gets TCG player money behind it. Mm -hmm. So I think this is, you know, a great push for the industry because I think any way that you can automate this, I mean, we've been using apps for how long now yeah. to automate trades and look up pricing and Delver lens exists and all these apps on your phone exist to help automate the process. And, you know, one of the last, roadblocks was kind of automation on the vendor side yep. and you know the one problem it still doesn't solve is obviously you have to grade the card you have to manipulate the card fine 
but you're effectively kind of eliminating a position here. Yep. Yeah. And you're in your bulk picker, and that helps vendors on overhead. And I think that getting the TCG player money behind this and them acquiring Roca is huge mm-hmm. because now they can get into the actual dev side of it. They can even say, look, here's we're going to scan a card into the Roca software, and this is what an MP card looks like according to our software. And then all of a sudden, there's less discrepancies on grading. Because yeah. if anyone's dealt with direct, it's I am so sick of sending the same card three times and getting three different grades on it. Please stop. It's infuriating. Sorry, I digress. Uh, grading was actually the first place I thought automation would occur for just that reason. I thought that would be the, the first and the easiest yeah. to to work on rather than individual images and things like that. But this kind of, to me, represents the next and possibly last step for automation within the industry. Um, I thought the thinking on it, grading might be a little too human right now. Because yeah. you have to, you do have to manipulate the card. You have to look at all the sides and all the angles, and I'm sure we could automate that. But for right now, I think it's just a little too, uh, too human, especially when you have to include foils, and what things like clouding means to a foil, right? So, I think all in all, introducing this little bit of automation is great into uh, for the industry on the whole, because like you said, it does kind of remove that position of you know in, of uh, an intake processor. Uh, bulk picker, whatever you need. You, same, it could be the same position essentially. Uh, TCG player wants to bring this in, like I mentioned, for the SYP uh, product, the cellular cellular product, and their idea is just it allows SYP vendors to just buy collections, you know, price price pay, and then just send it to TCG player to sort. And my first thought was, oh, they're going to be getting rid of their intake. It doesn't look like that's going to happen, but my next thought is, well, then they should be dropping the fees associated with SYP. And maybe that will come in time because that's what automation is meant to do and, and do that and handle uh, a cost reduction. And if that turns out to be a boon for TCG player, then you know more power to them and more power to SYP vendors because at that point in time, you're effectively running a full-on FBA operation. Yeah. But the only thing you're short is going to be the rest of the automation that places and large warehouses like Amazon can do that really don't fit into the collectible world where your pieces are literally just, you know, itty bitty bits of cardboard. Yeah. We've- and I, I think that's going to be the, the thing that will be the biggest barrier is, you know, you can, you can index a space for an item in a warehouse just fine. But when your index space is 10,000 items in a one foot area, yep. suddenly automation is almost prohibitive. And I think that, you know, when you say this is like, we're almost to the last step of grading the card. I think that's where it is kind of. Yep. And I think, you know, this this is interesting because I think this puts pressure on companies like Channel Fireball, mm-hmm. like Troll and Toad, yep. to try to find ways to innovate and automate. And it's interesting because, you know, an analog to the grading card world is HGA came out and said, hey, we're using software. We're using AI. We're using, you know, all of this new technology to help grade cards. And then PSA acquires a company that deals with software designed for grading and that kind of pushed more innovation in that industry mm-hmm. and i'm excited to see how this happens because roca is kind of you know they've been around for a while yeah you yeah. know there there was an article on cfb about them a while back that was like hey here's these guys doing this thing in the space it's cool check it out mm-hmm. and i think this may push people to be like all right well how can we innovate this product and make it better and again we're entering this weird like marketplace war 
yeah. for the sell your product vendors mm -hmm. and trying to establish, like you said, this FBA model where I can ship off to channel, I can ship off to troll, I can ship off to TCG and they handle it mm -hmm. for me. And I think that, you know, you complain about the fees on TCG. This long term, I think, is great for fees. Short term, it's probably not going to be because there's going to be a lot of loss up front. You're trying to integrate a new product, whatever. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Uh, but I think long term that this is this is going to be huge for them. And, you know, the speaking back to the experience of having it at miniature market, uh, you know, it was we got it when we integrated with TCG player. And it was huge for that process because it streamlined and we didn't have to take on extra employees to basically increase a workload. So this is the kind of thing that scales really well. Mm -hmm. You know, you can have one person load 10 Rokas and the same time it takes them to load two. Basically yep. just, you know, throw them in there and they're out. Yep. So I, I think it'll be very interesting to see how this impacts the TCG vendor relation, especially with their push to pro, their push to direct. They're trying to get, you know, Obviously, the bread and butter of TCG is backpackers. But there seems to be this push for higher volume sellers. And to me, that's what this announcement is for. This is for your high volume yeah, people. Yeah. Hey, come to Pro. We've got a Roka. We'll sort and reduce your fees. Yep. But if you're direct, you don't get that privilege. Yep. It'll, but then... it'll, it'll also be faster. Your product will get up sooner. You'll start making money faster. No, it, it, from a TCG, TCG player standpoint, yeah, it. it it's great in that regard and when you look at larger warehouses uh, it for dedicated vendors it also has the ability to cut down on the um the, the set busts so instead yeah. of loading you you know back when the street date mattered you would lo start busting at like you know midnight on thursday and bust into friday pack your orders etc now you just need to bust your boxes you know, load up your one rows, slide them down to the Roka and let that take care of it. And you can integrate that into your pipeline. And I think it's going to help dedicated vendors in that regard pretty well. You know, something else is like the difficulty, and you mentioned it, you know, dedicating the space, the bin space to these items. You put 10,000 cards in space. It's very difficult for, a, for you know, uh, a robot to come by and pull the one card that you need to pull from that bin. But what you can do is pull boxes mm -hmm. so for again a dedicated vendor it works out a lot better for a kind of potpourri vendor like troll and toad it's even better because they carry gigantic miniatures yeah like the rancor box from star wars is insanely large they do board games and things like that they have uh fba stuff inside their warehouse they can use larger automation compared to somebody like TCG Player who doesn't do a lot of box sales. They do, but not at the same volume. Maybe with the pops when they had them, the warehouses felt a little similar. That's kind of where that last little bit of automation comes in and really does bring them to that Amazon model where you have to have humans on the floor to do the small work, but you can have larger robots that can pull larger items because their movements are more gross than they are granular and can pull things like that it also makes it easier and i know a lot of vendors do this where they kind of create an internal quote-unquote slab for the high-end cards they put them in a safe what have you they're scanned in and out barcoded etc you no longer have to worry about the human uh component of that the theft and you could actually have your little robot come in and pull that from a bin because it's a larger item you could put yeah. it in a bigger case you can have your robot pull that out Th like 
that bit of automation definitely lends itself. And I think, again, TCG Player is going to kind of lead that push. A lot of these vendors are kind of the old guard. They do things the old way. They don't need to worry about automation. They can just hire infinite people at whatever price they need to for the area, and they'll get bodies. Yeah. And I, I think that's the other thing is that, you know, when uh, when discussions were happening about one of the vendors that recently exited the space, he said, you know, I don't want to pay people. I don't want to pay unskilled labor when I can just have a machine do it for me. Yeah. And that's that's the kind of thing is that you have this new guard, this new wave, which it's interesting to me that TCG is doing it because, you know, TCG is kind of seen as like they're they're an older company in the industry. Like yep. Card Kingdom, Star City were there before them. TCG has been there. But if you look at the history of TCG, they've been behind innovation in the industry for a while so it doesn't surprise me that they're kind of leading this push towards automation mm -hmm. uh it's it's more the thing to me that's telling is that they're the ones to implement it first yeah rather than the ones pushing for it because they're you know it, it's one of those like too big to fail problems right mm -hmm. if you innovate and you fail it can turn around and bite you in the butt but tcg just happens to be at the point where like well it doesn't really matter like it's gonna bite us in the butt and what we're going to make all our money back on the next kickback sale and fees. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because it's like, once you get to that size, you're going to be one of the largest vendors in the space. And the, the, the footprint of the channel firewall warehouse was smaller than a lot of people thought it would ever be star city. Yeah. Again, a smaller warehouse. Uh, Troll and toad has an obscenely large warehouse because of the cost of that space. It was yeah. ridiculously cheap, and yeah. they were able to put other vendors in it. But what they use is expansive. I would assume TCG Player probably has this, has the same or similar footprint to Troll and Toad, which means they have the ability to carve out space to begin that automation and testing. They're not doing it in a small footprint space where it becomes more of a hassle than, and a hindrance than it does a boon to what they're trying to do. Um, also, TCG Player is ancient. If you know yeah. them as the Monodrain. Yeah. That was their article, uh, their article site before they actually began the movement to becoming a full-on vendor. So it's like Chetty and everybody else has been in the space for long enough. But it's in, like, to your point, the one you're making was just like this innovation in the space. It's like they're, they're the ones doing it. They don't want to be stagnant. They want to create a business model that is multiple verticals and they want to be tall and as many of them as possible. Well, to serve all those verticals, you have to be able to be efficient at every step of every one of them and that brings them more in line with something with what amazon with like what amazon's trying to do and you know at this point they're most likely doing it better than troll and toad is yeah i and i i think that's kind of been you know some of their personnel acquisitions that they've had picking up scott elliott from gen con after he sold out gen con 50 and saying hey we're gonna have you help us lead the push for innovation and they're you know they're kind of doing their best that they can for everyone, backpackers, LGSs, yep. whatever, while looking out for the bottom line, whereas Channel is taking the more let's focus on the brick and mortar side. Mm -hmm. And, you know, TCG is kind of trying to be the like, we're going to, like you said, we're going to occupy multiple verticals. We're going to try to make everyone happy. And not everyone's going to be happy all of the time, but most people will be happy and we'll go from there. Yeah. And, you know, I'm curious to see if this follows with some other acquisitions for some of the, you know, grading software 
to see if there's a way for them to integrate that with Roka. Mm -hmm. Because when we picked up Roka, they had, I think, 20 to 30 software engineers at the time uh, when many picked up the Roka bot. And they said, look, we're just constantly working on trying to innovate this, update this, get new cards in it, try to find ways to make this program work better for more people. Yep. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that they, Roka, if not TCG player, has been historically good on is they're responsive to feedback mm -hmm. and they try to innovate on that feedback. Uh, TCG less so because most of their feedback that they receive is just reduce fees, stop your website from crashing every time you have a six hour sale that turns into a 16 hour sale mm -hmm. because your website crashes for 10 hours. Yep. Thanks. Yeah. No, I, I think I agree. And it, it's kind of curious. It's like, when it comes to the grading stuff, it can go one of two ways. You can just grade it to make sure it's being graded properly internally, or you could create your own slabs. And then there's that aspect as well. And that gives TCG another vertical and another product to sell people, you know, and it just allows them to grow, you know, their operation into a number of, or into a number of new areas and, you know, become more of a one-stop shop. The, the CFB thing, I think, is going to be interesting to see how they compete in this aspect. I, I don't know any brick-and-mortar personally that's using them, so I don't know if it's uh, you list, you ship, or you list, we ship. And if it's the, the latter, then I could see them wanting to be as innovative as possible and use a larger bin method, which allows for automation and pulling bins out and doing things that way. But it... They're not a company I really attach innovation to. Yeah, and I, I think my understanding is they're kind of on the TCG model of we have our direct program, we have our non-direct. You can ship it to us if you want, and we'll handle it. Or, okay. you know, but I, my understanding based on when they were exiting the marketplace was we don't want employees. Yep. So, <laughs> I I think they'll probably try to shy away from the direct model, excepting perhaps flesh and blood, which is completely different i will i will say you know speaking of brick and mortars using roca i don't think it's financially practical yet for a brick and mortar to do this i think if you're an lgs owner out there listening to this do a little bit of research uh it was not very cost effective um when it was first brought to miniature market uh it was you know they priced everything based on market you were responsible for repairs. Mm. There was an amount of warranty associated with it. So stuff like that. Got it. Um, so there's, there is an amount of liability there. Like there's online support, but really if you have to troubleshoot, you get one training session with them and that's it. So you got to figure it out yourself. Got it. Okay. Um, which, you know, for an LGS can be a little bit prohibitive, honestly. Yeah. Like that's, Hey, that's, that's a fact. Uh, one of the other interesting things is right now, this machine only supports Magic. It does not support Pokemon, and it does not support Yu-Gi-Oh. They were planning on adding it. Pandemic happened, mm. uh, and those plans got delayed. So that, that is also worth noting. If you're a multiple vertical, it's pretty much just your Magic department that can be helped out by this right now. So... Something that uh, I think TCG will likely start investing in, and I expect that's the first place we'll see innovation with the product, is they'll say, hey, look, we've got this robot that sorts Pokemon orders, so we can do Pokemon Direct now. Yep, yeah. 
We can do Yu-Gi-Oh! Direct now. Yep, eventually, uh, and- yeah, eventually the, the, that should be set up in such a way where whatever identifying marks are necessary to identify the card is just uh, able to be loaded into uh, the software into, and essentially just creating a database. You know, you just tell it what it, yeah. what game it's looking at, and it just goes. And it, and yeah. it just pulls in what it needs to. Uh, I don't know. I've played with so many of these and seen so many, like, pieces of scanning hardware while at uh, Grand Prix. Like, yeah. people wandering around with, with, with their stuff. It's hard It's hard to, to remember if I'd seen this. I know the last thing I saw looked like an old-school overhead projector. Yeah. yeah. At uh, a Louisville. Uh, oh. I can't remember what that was called, but yeah. there. I remember similarly in Memphis guy was buying and it was like the t- the Skyland scanner almost mm-hmm. he was just waving cards under it and it was pulling up TCG info for him like okay yep that's that's cool but then it was like it would pull up a non-foil version and it was foil or it would pull up the different bordered version and then you know that cost time that you have to then go back and fix yep yeah but it's it, it I was gonna say it's it's interesting in the space, and it, uh, I think it just speaks to your point of like, there are options. Do your due diligence, and determine what's yeah. best for you. Yeah, and I think it's the kind of thing that you know, by and large, as an LGS, your free options are almost always going to be your best. Mm-hmm. Your Dover lenses, TCG familiar, the employee you're already paying whatever amount an hour that you're paying him to just have this information, which he has because he's you know passionate about it. Yep. It's probably going to be the best. This is the kind of thing that is going to have a bigger impact on the larger vendor space. And by having an impact on TCG, obviously has an impact on the backpacker as well, because that's your primary venue besides like Facebook posts. So uh, it'll be interesting to see for sure. uh, Absolutely. And I I think at, at that point, you know, you start here, you have your warehouse automation and then, you know that that's that's really it. There's not much more you can introduce automation into uh, if you can't figure out how to get a piece of hardware to go to the correct bin for War of the Spark to find the promo foil bioessence hydra that somebody's ordered from you <laughs> that I'm holding up. You know until you can get something to do that and separate out your bins enough so that. You know, a, a robot can comb it and pull that card in the proper condition. You're still going to need that human element. So it's not like this is an attempt by TCG player to like Union Bust, which it looked like up up at the, t- at the top of this when it was first announced. This is more about bringing in additional inventory, stocking their shelves, uh, helping people out f- for SYP and uh, the RI stuff, so you can order back out. And then essentially just, you know, turn the intake position in a number of these jobs or a number of these organizations into something that's more efficient that can just move through more cards faster. It may not necessarily be about reduction in employee overhead. It's just about speed and efficiency at that point. Like I mentioned, you still need to bust a specific amount of product. When when a new set comes out and your internal algorithms and data will tell you how many cases you need to do. Well, you still need employees to open those boxes and load the Rokas. But what you're doing at the end of the day is giving people back sleep 
or giving them back time of their day to do other things. You're not removing employees from the process on the whole. Maybe yeah. a few overall because you you can bust uh, less in a lesser amount of time or more in a lesser amount of time to let the Rokas just deal with it and save that. But that means your employees can then specialize or move on to other tasks and just save everybody overhead. And I, I think it's also worth noting that uh, this, this announcement, so tracing back a little bit for TCG, this announcement came right after they acquired a $35 million investment grant. Yes, to improve right. technology and expansion of their platform. Yep. So this is clearly something that is kind of just starting for them. Uh, I would expect, you know, pay attention in the coming months. You'll probably see them, you know, and this is something I've harped on with sports guys. There's no sports card equivalent to TCG player. I would not be surprised if something like this was a preemptive move for them to say, all right, we can automate some workforce. Let's bring in more people to expand into another version. Got it article like you touched on early um i i just think it's you know it's it's exciting from the retailer side mm -hmm. to see all of this and to see tcg player driving this innovation and i think that this innovation has driven innovation elsewhere by you know cfb wouldn't exist if tcg and watsi hadn't been doing what they've been doing within the industry in the retailer space they wouldn't have that niche to carve out yep. and it's again i i love innovation and unregulated marketplaces i think it's great i i am excited for this it's going to be awesome yep. yeah and i it's it's going to be exciting to see um especially as some of this stuff might be able to roll out to event event floors and make the the process of buying or selling easier on both sides of things too you know that's really like the kind of last unexplored space is just that interaction but we'll see yeah picks you ready let's do it all right uh, i went first last week so you can talk to us about your own comment awesome uh, it's an uncommon that not too long ago was $15. What? And it's not Pitiless Plunderer. It's Shattering Spree. <laughs> uh, why Shattering Spree? Well, as you can see on the stocks graph, it's on a downturn right now. The interesting thing about this, and this is just the guild-packed regular card. This card has not been, has not seen a mass reprint. It was in Mystery Boosters, and it was in the Ravnica Guild Kits. Yep. And obviously, you know, a couple months ago, it spiked up to 15. We're on the way down after this now. This card is eternally playable in constructed formats. Uh, it's great in Modern. Mm -hmm. It gets around Chalice. It's great in Legacy. It gets around Chalice. It's great in Vintage. It gets around Chalice. It's great in EDH. Kills everything. Yep. Uh, it is... You know, it's main competition, and this was a card that when it was spoiled, I said, you know, it was one of my picks, was by Force mm -hmm. from Amonkhet, uh, which if you take a look at the stocks graph on Amonkhet, we see a steady rise since the floor hit shortly after release. Shattering Spree, on the other hand, like I said, we're in a downturn. So why? Why now? Well, we're getting back to Brothers War, which historically is an Artifacts Matter block. Yep. We're getting back to Dominaria, which always has some influence from the Brothers, artifacts matter uh i i expect that this is we're approaching a new floor on this card of about four to five dollars and i think that this is a card that is kind of reprint locked having the replicate mechanic mm -hmm. it's specific to guilds it's specific to a guild and it is specific to a printing of a guild from the decade ago almost i don't think we get it back and if we do it's going to be in a smaller print set this also has a lot of EDH playability to it as well. 
Yes. It's just one of those uncommon staples that you look at and you're like, all right, this is never not going to be $5, right? Never not. And the interesting thing is if you take a look at the pack foil of this card, you see that it's spiked around the same time as the normal one. But the percentage loss is not nearly the same as the percentage loss we're seeing on the Mm non-foil. We saw a 60% loss in price in this new floor, and we're going from 75 to about 60, which is not a 65% loss. So this is another one that I think long-term, you're looking at about 8 to 12 months probably when we get to whatever iteration of Dominaria we're on at this point. If you count the 12 years we were there as one iteration, I guess this is number three. Uh, <laughs> iteration number two of the Brothers War, because that's what Antiquities was, and I guess we had the Urza block too, which was kind of like kinda, that. Yeah. Anyways, uh, I think that's when you're looking to see about a 10 to $15 run on this. Okay. Now that's if we don't suddenly get like an artifact-heavy set in between them, which obviously we know the set's doesn't seem like there's anything super artifact heavy but who knows kamigawa does crazy things shattering spree was great against jit when it existed stranger things have happened yeah uh this is also the kind of thing that you can sit one to two of in a binder it will even things out and if you're at a booth somewhere you can always charge six to seven dollars for this card even when it's three get a quick double up because somebody needs it for their sideboard for a modern event because somebody is playing Urza Saga shenanigans. Also, as long as that card's legal, this card's great. Yes. I just think it's a super solid, like, it occupies that path to exile spot of I always want at least four of these on me at all times. Because the opportunity cost there is so low, and the second I have it, someone is going to trade way too heavy for it. Yep. Or pay way too much for it. I just think it's an overall solid look we had eyes on this card recently it spiked starting to die down a little bit because the hype died because mh2 is on the back burner whatever great pick it up now i think you'll see and we've seen this historically where it can hover around ten dollars for two to three years so yep no i I think it's a good pickup and i think it's another one of those good looks for a cyclical card Uh, i'm gonna zoom out in the stocks graph so people can see it so there's this like big uptick after the graph goes vertical in august of 2017 and it peaks in march of 2018 and then slides back down and then it jumps up again and this is basically uh set by a trend the trends in modern and what's going on almost entirely there um i'm trying to call back to what happened at that point in time in modern and i think that's just the uptick in affinity and hardened scales all this other stuff after kaladesh block hit and you know modern just picked up uh a, a bunch of odds and ends artifact decks yeah they made artifact decks good which means chalice was more prevalent which means you needed a way to deal with it in most decks and the easiest way to deal with in modern at that point in time was shattering spree the newest spike that we saw comes very similarly from modern horizons 2 the rise of artifact decks in both the original quote-unquote affinity deck that came out of that and hammer time and that's kind of the the driving force behind that Chalice of the Void is still extremely good in the format, and so anybody that wants to play artifacts for whatever reason at all still needs to look into removal, and again, Shattering Spree, because of how Replicate works, is one of the best answers to that. This isn't Modern is not the kind of format where you can play by force, like we no, were talking about. It, 
before they cast. You just you just can't. It doesn't exist. Um, you know, Mox Monkey, too slow, things like that. It's just Shattering Spree becomes one of the, the best answers. Um, it's not Meltdown. That's the free spell. There's just another one, one CMC or one mana value artifact removal spell. It's like Smash or something like that. And that was playable for a hot minute in Modern as well. Yeah. Because it costs one and it did what it had to do. Not Smash the Smithereens, which is also a good card, which you play in Burn because it costs two and not one. Right? And it deals three damage. But this it's that kind of card, this kind of cycle, and everything you're pointing to is that next... The, the wheel turning. It's the next yeah. up, the next uptick that we will see. So again, we buy now in in the valley, and we just sit on it until it's time to move. You know, moving into the summer, or everything as everything's sliding down. If something goes sideways in modern, all of a sudden, you know, better builds are found for artifact decks by the time we get to Vegas. Who knows? But this is yeah. to the last point you made. A card you just sit on, you put in your binder to even out trades. You just you know incubate it for a bit and eventually you'll be able to turn it for yep. a profit pretty easily at no point in time is this card not not wanted because of, of modern or legacy or vintage or edh it's not vandal blast but you know it still does a lot sure does right so uh for me i'm going with i feel like my sixth green card in a row for edh <laughs> at least uh, we're, we're running hot when it comes to green yeah and uh, it's a reprint, but I'm looking at the original version. So, Splendid Reclamation, a card from Eldritch Moon, a card that's been on my list for not too long a time, uh, about uh, two months now, three months now. Uh, originally hit right before, right after one of the spikes. Uh, I tossed on my list because it's just I wanted to eyeball it, and we finally, with the reprint, are seeing a downturn in market price, so I'll bring that up, then we can see pretty easily that we are headed into a valley which is exactly where where we want to be with this card it's going to get a reprint and i expect this to be gobbled up now the original card just sat around for a while doing a whole lot of nothing very interesting to see lands matters was a style of play in edh already uh we didn't uh we had the get rock monster by the time this hit because it was in the set prior in Shadows over Innistrad. We have uh, we had Lord Wind Grace. We had some number of Omnaths already. And so the idea of Lands Matter, as I mentioned, as uh, stylings of control uh, to uh, aggressive builds, synergistic combos, uh, things like Tatiova, Benthic Druid, all existed. Uh, actually, Benthic Druid came out later. But that's just, yeah. just a highly synergistic card. That's kind of where we're looking at with uh, EDH playability. But a lot of those cards existed. And we'll take a look and I'll bring up stocks. And you can basically see it's like Momnath, Mono Omnath, Titania, Lord Windgrace. Uh, some some weird ones like Borborygmus, which doesn't quite make sense. Because once your lands are in play, you can't throw them at people. And I, then, I, I never played that card in that deck. Sorry. That's terrible in there. And then all the way down at the end. Uh, Kadama of the East Tree, which I think is a hilarious combo, General. The way it triggers. Whenever another permanent enters the battlefield under your control, if it wasn't put onto the battlefield with this ability, you may put a permanent card with equal or lesser converted mana value from a hand off the battlefield. So you just dump all your lands or zero CMC, whatever, and you just, you just vomit out everything. So, uh, 
As far as playability within the format, it, who doesn't like returning lands from their graveyards? It's what you do. This one doesn't in mass though. Uh, it plays an interesting role in lands-based decks and can pivot from utility spell to kill condition based on when in the game you're casting it. It only costs four mana, three and a green. Like so, it definitely plays. It's definitely a role player all the way throughout the game. Rarely, it's so it's rarely dead and should always be in the conversation when building an EDH deck centered around a lands theme, regardless of what the theme actually is. And it's not quite foundational, but I think it's just a matter of time before that happens as we continue to get a Lands Matters general every year or two, and they just seem to get bigger, better, and more absurd. Uh, the latest one actually came in Midnight Hunt, and it's Slogurk the Overslime. Uh, not the most popular general, it seems like, according to uh, Rec, but Splendid Reclamation is sure in 61% of all of those decks. Yeah. And so... This holds true. We just keep getting this stuff. We keep getting it. So, reprinted in Crimson Val, time to buy in. We're looking to buy in in probably a week or two as Val makes it into the hands of players and forces the price of both versions down. Right? I expect this card to see renewed growth within one to two months after release, and if we can get in between two and four dollars, we should be able to move this to buy less in about six months as demand remo removes copies from the market. So initially, when this was on my list, there were about 270, 280 copies on TCG Player for $4.49. Uh, there's $2.44 up right now at $3.90. So that's about a 50, cents, uh, 50 cent dip and about 10% uh, removed from the market in about three months. But at the same time, it's not a slow sale either. We're still seeing about thir uh, 13, 20, about 25 being removed in the last. 24 hours from TCG player about one an hour so obviously not the greatest right now but I expect I do expect that to pick up uh, the first printing was a slow mover and I mentioned this already but I'll bring back the stocks graph so everybody can see where to go and we'll take a look at so it just sat here like a lump it just tanked from release price of eight dollars bottomed out peaked uh, bottomed out right around Aether Revolt about 60 cents, jumped up to 250, and then came hurtling back down to about a dollar up until Guilds of Rav when we started getting some like light lands matter stuff with Dominaria and, and Tatiova in that set. So it was slow mover while it was in standard, then jumped after rotation and held steady into Zendikar Rising when it jumped again with the new landfall payoffs. And I don't expect to see the same kind of vertical movement in price this time around. Uh, like we saw with Zendikar Resurgent, and I expect more steady growth. It, it became this weird thing where it just jumped up so high so quickly, it seemed like a lot of people backed off the card. Like, uh, And it's easier to see if I zoom in, but it's the market price, so it's not going to look that great. Oh, come on. Come on. Uh, it's like a monkey trying to hump a doorknob over here. It looks nice and steady when you're zoomed in over like a couple of weeks and you see this big jump from about uh, $4 uh, up towards 5 but that happened in a matter of hours. And when you stretch this out a little bit, you can see that the market price in September was about 320 and then it shoots up to 5 in October. So in under a month, it just jumps up. And that's what kind of scared people off. And I expect now that we're going to see this downturn, we, still, we just got another Lands Matters general we can finally see uh, just an organic price trend to this card. That natural demand will kick in. And like I said, in a week or two, that's when we want to pick this up. 
and from there it'll probably be about a month ish uh, that'll be prime buy-in and then you know three to six we'll see that up that uptick and then what did i say i think in nine ish i'm oh, sorry six months that's when demand removes copies and that's when we'll probably be able to start moving the buy list if you get in between two and four and i know it's a big range but i don't expect the eldritch moon version to fall that low i do expect the crimson vow version to be pretty cheap this yeah. is like i said at the top this is not foundational but we keep getting lands matters cards uh this year alone, I think we got three or four. Between, I, I think. Oh, sorry. No, I was ahead. gonna say between uh, AFR, MH2, Midnight Hunt, uh, maybe something in Time Spiral. I, I think we just yeah. got like a bunch of Land Matter stuff. Well, I think that's one of the interesting things about this is that it's a card that's good with incidental design, right? Because they don't make <laughs> Lands Matter blocks. No, they just. Oh, this is flavorful in this world we're building. We'll make it lands matter, and that's one of the things that makes this such an intriguing pick to me. Is you know you described a very reasonable timeline. You know, this is something that may just be like one card away. Like obviously, it released with Gitrog Monster, yep. which is insane with this card. That was probably by design. I hope who knows. Urza Saga exists, so whatever with design, but. You know, this is something that periodically is just going to get more looks. Yep. So even if, you know, the timeline is a little bit longer, to me, that's not the worst thing in the world because they're going to perpetually bring new eyes to this card just by the way the game works right now. Mm -hmm. Is, you know, we'll throw in a legend that lands matter and, you know, maybe people will want to draft it or something. We'll see. And I think that's one of the things that makes a pick like this so compelling is it's a card away from being broken in a way that is reasonable for it to just be like, yeah, casuals love this. Let's throw it out there. And then you have that casual price point driving it as opposed to like my shadow of the grave pick, which is very much a competitive card. Yep. And I, I think that's, you know, I've been high on this card for a while because I love effects like this, because I think it's, you know, one of my favorite strategies is to blow up lands and this is a card that people can play that allows me to blow up lands over and over. Yeah. It's perfect. Uh, I, I just think this is like an incredibly solid call out, especially, you know, going from it showing us that, look, this isn't something we're going to lock to a specific setting. Yep. This is something that just thematically we want to interject now and then. And like, that's something that I think makes it incredibly compelling for me. Yep. And I, th I think uh, the last thing I want to stress on is what I mentioned, which is just this goes in a, a large swath of decks. And I'll bring up Rec again, and I'll, I'll just call it two specific generals to show you how wide this goes. You have Tatiova. Gains a land, you draw a card whenever a land enters the battlefield. That's sure. pretty dirty. You're not going to do a whole lot with that. But then you have Omnoth, Locus of Rage. When landfall, you make a 5-5 five, five red and green elemental creature token. Like, that's, a, a, that's really aggressive. And then I yeah. mentioned uh, Kadama as kind of being, you know, your combo general. And then be between that, you just have, like, good stuff cards. You have good stuff generals. You can be a little oppressive with some of the other odds and ends. But this just goes into this large swath of decks. We're not looking at a card that's really, like, laser focused on one particular strategy. The strategy lands matters is a lot more wide than it is tall, so to speak. Yeah. And I think that's important to remember about this card and some of the others that I brought up over time. 
Yeah, super solid. I it it is hit number twelve in a row of green EDH or whatever the number yeah, actually right. is. To be fair, I called out Yavimaya Cradle of Growth last week, and that does work in elves and legacy. Yeah. That is a constructed yeah. staple. The Gaius Cradle <laughs> taps for one. Reed Duke was very happy to find out. Where we are. All right, fine. Fine, I'll give you that one. It's the only one I'm taking. Everything else, yeah, has just been casual. There's up and down. But, uh, that's all I got for this week, though. Same. All right. So we are at MTG Cabalcast on Twitter, Patreon, and Facebook. Uh, the audio version of this podcast is on, I believe it's still on Audible, Stitcher, Spotify, yeah. uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. You can find me at Haltime Reptar on Twitter. You are? At Thirsty Sizzler. And we'll see you next week.